welcome to the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. Listen in as co-hosts Ted Stank and Tom Goldsby take a leap onto the ships of supply chain, crowd surf into the long lines of meeting holiday demand, and wade into the depths of warehouse inventory buildup. They'll cover all the relevant and current topics blocking the canal of your minds and discuss industry issues that keep you up at night. If you enjoy the show, download and subscribe to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management, wherever you listen to podcasts. Without further ado, let's begin our show, where you'll hear what you'd least expect from the people you want to hear it from the most. Our co-hosts, Ted and Tom. Welcome, listeners, to the next edition of the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. I'm here with my good friend, Tom Goldsby. We're going to talk for a bit about some of the things that are going on in the supply chain management world. Both of us have been on the road quite a bit, seen a lot of different things. We'll share some of our insights from those road travels with you. And then we're going to bring our really good friend, Dr. Randy Bradley, in with us to talk about his area of expertise, which is supply chain management, digitalization and automation. Tom, what's been going on in your mind? Well, Ted, it doesn't seem like the world is getting to be any less interesting. Uh, as you mentioned, I've been out and about. I've, I've been domestic going to some industry meetings. I was at the uh, North American Supply Chain Executive Summit in Chicago a couple of weeks ago. And then, of course, the CSCMP conference, as well as the, I went to the National Hardwood Lumber Association meeting last week in Cleveland. Just really interesting to get pulse reads kind of across the business and supply chain world. And a theme that we bring up routinely is uncertainty. Uh, a lot of unease out there. People seem to suggest in many sectors, things are still hot and growing. Certainly finding margins is really difficult because of inflation. It seems like everything is costing more from labor, facilities, real estate, warehousing, transportation. Fortunately, fuel prices are heading down. And I know that's something we'll probably touch on. And that's, that's a glimmer of hope. Perhaps we saw oil at less than $80 a barrel. And they always talk about the feathers and rockets, you know, that price of fuel goes up really quickly with increases in oil prices. And then it's more like a feather in terms of fuel prices declining when we say oil prices declining. But uh, I think uh, even then we're seeing fuel prices down, which is a a bit of relief. But I, I would sum up by saying people don't seem to think that the uncertainty challenges that we've been facing are are really lightening up. And of course, uh, you know, that R word is factoring in. I know we'll be touching on that. But hey, I know you've spent some time overseas, Ted. Tell us about your travels. Yeah, I've been in Germany the last couple of weeks, um, traveled through France and over to Germany. We had our executive MBA program on the ground in Hamburg for their two-week residency period. A lot of interesting things. We saw some companies. We talked to a lot of experts on European supply chains, European economists. Unease was a word you just brought up, Tom, and I think that that remains the phrase that I'll particularly use for uh, European feelings right now. Similarly, consumer spending is is still strong there, but they might be a bit ahead of us in terms of GDP slowing down. They've obviously been hit more by energy prices than than we have. I was uh, noting from my taxi cab on the way to the airport last Friday, their fuel prices at the pump was about 1.9 some euros per liter, which translates to about $7.30 a gallon. 
Imagine what that would do to the U.S. economy if all of a sudden we came out one day and said $7.30. And my understanding is the average last week was between about $7.20 all the way up to about $8.30, depending on, on where you were. So, you know, the geopolitics, I think, play really big in European minds. They're a lot closer to the Russia-Ukraine scenario than we are. We had a lot of talk about that, a lot of conjecture about where that's going. While I was over there, all of course, all those big breakthroughs of the Ukrainian offensives, there were some interesting commentary on what conjectures uh, might happen on that front. So again, I don't think you can separate out what's happening in Europe from an economic and supply chain standpoint from what's happening in that war. And, and wars are very fickle things, right? Ukraine looks very strong right now. That probably encourages markets, although markets are crashing. We'll, we'll talk about that. But unease, unease is the word, probably more so even than here. You mentioned that consumer spending remains really high. You know, we watched that consumer sentiment index. It's ticking slightly upward, which is interesting to me. I couldn't quite understand why consumers were feeling the doldrums maybe quite so much. I mean, it was at record lows and this University of Michigan index goes back more than 50 years. And I'm thinking about that's like the course of my lifetime, pretty much. And it's like, well, we've seen some pretty dark times. I think we're watching the news too much, Tom. Maybe. I think so. I think so. We're just consumed uh, and just kind of grasping at that bad news. But, you know, still a lot of positive signs out there that would suggest that if we are going to go into recession, I don't think it's going to be a long standing one. But as you mentioned, you know, we were kind of thrown for a loop with the, the consumer price index numbers coming back for August showing, what, 8.3%, which we expected that to come down, particularly with things like fuel coming down. But I guess grocery prices, a lot of everyday stable items are still, you know, pretty elevated. And, you know, I've been asked by, by a lot of people uh, about general inflation. And I think there's just been a lot of price taking going on out there. I, I think that, this is like a pent up pressure that companies have wanted to raise prices for many, many years. And they finally saw the opportunity, looked around and said, hey, prices are higher for me. Everybody knows prices are higher. I'm going to pass them along. And they, and they went along in a, in a big way. I point out that CPI is at 8.3%, but the dollar stores are now charging a buck 25 and a buck 50 for stuff. Right. right. So they saw the opportunity and it's like, oh, we've been wanting to do that for years. That's a really interesting premise, Tom, because you're right. I mean, in my travels over the last many years, talked to a lot of executives and they're like, yeah, we, we'd like to increase prices, but we just can't. And now we have a reason to. You know, another thing I'd throw in there, you know, economics is just mass behavior, right? Mass psychology. I don't think you can separate out. I jokingly said we're watching the news too much. Well, this does happen to be a pretty big election season. And of course, there's all kinds of political ads out there on the airwaves, many of them on both sides. I, I've been amused by the fact that both Republicans and Democrats, I've seen TV ads that both say that we can't afford to buy food and that's either the Republicans' fault or the Democrats' fault. Again, I just think we're in this hyper state of paying attention to people blaming one thing on the other and everything is awful and bad. And I think that seeps through to mass psychology. And although now we're seeing the uh, consumer sentiment rise, right? Are you shopping at the $1.25 store? 
now? Is that- yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't been in, in there lately. <laughs> Get your loyalty card at the at the dollar thirty eight store, or whatever. It is. <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, you know that there is uh, kind of a fixation with kind of the dark clouds, and and there's no doubt. I mean, uh, you, you can't overlook you know general price index and things heading up that suggests that the dollar doesn't go quite as far. Now, that said, you were in Europe where the dollar has never been stronger. I mean, did you feel like a very wealthy man walking around Hamburg? I'm glad you brought that up because it was close to one to one. I mean, and the last time I was in Europe pre-COVID, it was, I don't know, uh, like 140 to one, you know. And yeah, the dollar spent pretty well over there. I was pretty surprised by what my cab cost, you know, um, when I got my ATM out and then saw it on my online statement. It, it wasn't, you know, shocking to see what, what the exchange rate was, which that's, that's great for imports, right? And not so great if I'm an exporter and yeah. have a big export business because a lot of countries, I mean, the dollar is so strong right now and it's, it's really impacting exports. So for our supply chain friends uh, who are in big export businesses, we're probably seeing a little bit of a, of a decay there. Yeah, when I was with the hardwood lumber people, I mean that—that's a sector that is exporting immensely, and they're uh, a bit of you know downbeat mood as it related to how strong the dollar is and, and the purchasing power abroad. That they felt that was going to make things a little bit difficult for them. So, so I'm going to throw a few more challenges at you and, and get your take on it. I recently read that Ford, not only the semiconductor problems, but I mean just to make this very ironic is having problems getting the oval blue Ford emblem that they put on every car. They can't get enough of them to put on cars. And they literally have like pickup trucks sitting in finished goods lots without the blue oval on it, waiting for blue ovals to arrive. I have a friend who works in industrial refrigeration, and he was telling me just this weekend that supply parts that used to take him six weeks to get in are now taking up to 40 weeks to get in and still maybe not arriving on time. Inventories are up 20% from last year because consumers are spending, but we're spending more on services than we are on goods. Baby formula is still short. Butter is starting to have shortages in butter because we don't have enough labor on farms and the cost of fertilizer and food for the dairy cows is up. And so they've cut production. I mean, just crazy things that are still rippling through our supply chains. Any takes on that, things that you've seen? Yeah, you know, the semiconductor issue, that's that's pervasive. And I think we anticipated that that was going to be a problem for quite a, a while, but you blew me away with the Blue Oval. I had not heard about the Ford issue on the Blue Oval. And it does occur to me that maybe that's not such a mission critical part. I mean, the car still runs, right? I mean, you could drive it off the lot, but uh, from a branding standpoint, that could, uh, you know, talk to our friends down the hall. They might say there's no way a Ford product moves without that Blue Oval. But if we have any of our marketing friends listening to this podcast, you just made them pass out, I think. <laughs> I think I probably did. But I know the desperation. Yeah, those are, uh, you know, they were talking about the SUVs and that the F-150, you know, the sacred cow of that lineup, not moving 40, 45,000 units. They claim they're still going to hit their numbers because it's been such a robust year, but uh, they'd be a whole heck of a lot better if, if they could move those products. Uh, yeah, I was I was thinking it was more mission critical stuff. Now, again, like you said, our friends in marketing might say that Blue Oval is mission critical. <laughs> hey, I got a couple other things. What's your take on the FedEx announcement a couple of weeks ago? That was like a ton of bricks, right? I mean, because volumes way down and we'd heard 
their peers, UPS, over the last couple of quarters, uh, actually for some time, have been much more selective in the freight that they've been taking on and not taking on quite as much Amazon volume and, and so forth. But you know, FedEx has not been playing that game. In fact, I think they've been trying to absorb a lot of volume that, that UPS has left uh, by the wayside. And, and so to hear that volumes were down and they were missing the mark by so much. And of course, the market certainly responded to it. You know how I look at transportation. I, I, I look at it as a bellwether metric. You know, if people are buying and selling products. It's moving by transportation. And so we ought to pay really close attention to it. So I have to say, it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks to hear that, you know, one of our, our largest uh, small package LTL carriers was getting hit so hard. Yeah, I agree. And I think it remains to be seen. I, I, I've seen some takes that say that it's more on FedEx than it is on the economy, yet um, UPS and some of the other big carriers still got hit at, at the market price. I think it remains to be seen. We, one thing I think has a lot of people unsettled is here we are in the midst of the generally the big holiday stock up season and we're not seeing that big run up that we usually see, mainly because we've got all that inventory in house already. So I think that's got a lot of a lot of market spooked, at least, um, if not on earnings statements. Hey, let's move on to something else, Tom. Marianne Wanamaker, we, she's been a guest on here a couple times. She is our go-to economist. She always has great comments. She addressed our executive advisory board back in early August. And one of the things she said was that U.S. domestic population is virtually stagnant. We're not growing. We have relatively restrictive immigration policies through the last couple of uh, administrations. And so if we're going to grow GDP, it's not growing based on more mouths to feed. It's going to have to grow based on productivity. The last time we saw a big productivity leap was back in the 80s and 90s as we moved to computerize so many of our processes. Um, many experts are saying that the next big curb jump is going to be through digitalization, automation, better use of the data we have available using advanced analytics, etc., I know it's a topic you and I have talked about a lot. We thought it would be really interesting to bring in our good friend, Dr. Randy Bradley, who really spends all of his days in this area. Randy, welcome to the podcast. Ted and Tom, it's good to be with you guys today. I appreciate you having me. All right. You're going to answer all our questions on this, right? <laughs> we will give you an answer. <laughs> okay, good deal. Well, hey, Randy, again, great to have you with us. And and, and maybe just a, a better reaction to Marianne's assertion that we're going to have to look to automation, digitalization to help us close that gap. And uh, again, you've been studying, researching this, commenting on it. It's, it's You've made a career of it. Can you kind of weigh in on that assertion? I mean, do you see it has that kind of potential? And if so, how do we get there? How do we fulfill that potential? Tom, I, I do believe Marianne is, is spot on in terms of we're going to have to rely more on automation. But it's like a two-edged sword because when we say the population is not growing, we still have the opportunity to look at the current workforce. And when we look at what we're producing in terms of supply chain professionals who can go out and work for these organizations who can not only design solutions but can also put these solutions into the marketplace, we're not necessarily seeing a drop-off there. 
I think the challenge is, is where we need the skill sets. We're not having those skill sets actually come to bear. And that's really the biggest thing. And so in regards to that, a lot of people think that the more we invest in automation, the more likely it is that we're going to actually lose jobs. So then the question is, do we also see a reduction in the workforce? And from my perspective, it doesn't have to be that way. But reality is that it is that way. And primarily it's because of this. I'm going to give you a quote from someone and to protect the, the innocent. Uh, I actually won't say their name, but they, they put this out in a prominent piece. And it says the goal of supply chain digitization is to automate and reduce wasteful resource utilization. I could not disagree with that more because it's a wasted opportunity if our only focus is on operational efficiency. What we have to do is we have to see digitalization as an opportunity to really reimagine who we are as an organization in terms of how we engage and collaborate with our suppliers and how we actually connect to our consumers and how we actually service them. When you were talking about the Ford piece and what they actually put a product out there without it. And when we, we started and Ted was talking about how we've really seen a, a demand shift, if you will think about, yeah, we, we're not seeing this rush up to the holiday season. But because remember last year, we were telling people if you wanted something for the holiday season, that needed to be in around October. Well, this year we changed that and we said it needed to be done by May and June. So it's not to the point to where volumes are down holistically. If we look across the year, we're about flat. The thing is, things have shifted in terms of cycles. So we have a lull where we're not expecting it because we had a peak where we previously weren't expecting it. Now, where digitalization comes in is the fact that I've always said digitalization should actually fill gaps, not steal jobs. It should fill gaps in talent, gaps in people, and gaps in, in intellect and capability. And if we begin to make our business case around what it gives us the ability to do and something that's a bit more strategic and less operational or less tactical, I think then we can get to what Marianne is saying is that we can rely on various forms of automation to help increase productivity. Hey, Randy, I, I want to touch on a couple of things. But first, I want to give an example of exactly what you just said. I have a good friend who is a senior director at a pretty big company, and he's responsible for inbound component movement to support manufacturing, global manufacturing for a, for a Fortune 50 company. Talked about RPAs and bringing RPAs, which is basically an automated administrative process assistant, into their work. And initially, his team was very resistant to it because they saw it as a threat, like, oh, sure, you're going to come in and automate what we do. And then the next thing we know, there's going to be layoffs, et cetera. Um, he challenged them to come up with ways to do exactly what you just said. Let's see if we can get it to do something that right now we don't have the time or the bandwidth to take on, but we know it would bring value. And they actually had a competition. They got kind of gamified it and they came up with a way to use RPAs to look at products that they were currently expediting. They would have history of different components and lead times not meeting uh, expectations that they would have to expedite. So they'd put them on an expedited ordering pattern. Well, his team was so constrained that they didn't have time to look at those products that they had previously put on an expedited pattern to say, hey, things have changed. Let's take those off the expedited pattern. They put the RPA to work on that, just looking at historical lead times, et cetera. And they found a number of the products that they were currently expediting no longer met the criteria to have to expedite. 
And yet his team didn't have the time to go through and find that. And it was multi-millions of dollars in savings. Now, all right, this is a cost savings conversation, I guess. But it was a multi-million dollars in savings by not having to pay that expedited freight. And guess what else it did from a behavioral standpoint? It got his team really excited about, hey, what else can we find to use digital tools to help us with? So I think it's a great example of what you're talking about. I agree, Ted. And even though, like you said, it was about cost savings, that's that's not a bad thing because the reality is they were able to get to the cost savings without having to reduce headcount. And oftentimes we keep hearing we have to reduce headcount when in reality, what we have to figure out is what are the things we need to be doing, should be doing, but we just don't have the capacity of bandwidth to do. It's estimated that 30% of people's jobs are mundane tasks that what we call routine, repeatable, and rarely go wrong to where you need human intervention. And those are the types of things that are ripe for robotic process automation, as you were just talking about. And now those people are free to go do the work that we haven't been able to get done. So a lot of times when I teach this, so so I'm very bullish on digitalization, and maybe it's because I hang out with you, Randy, but I think it is definitely a tool that we can use to make us more productive and not replace us. Now, certain things are going to get replaced, those rote jobs. And what I will always say to groups of managers when I'm addressing them about this topic is do a value process map of your day-to-day existence from the time you get into work in the morning until the time you leave sometime in the evening. And say how much of your time is spent on value-added versus non-value-added activities. And then think if you could automate and push to digital assistant many of the non-value-added things that you do. Like an MIT professor used an RPA to answer emails and found that about 95% of his emails, particularly when teaching classes, could be answered with an RPA. Now, think of any one of us, if we could say 95 out of 100 emails that you get, you could have an assistant respond to. Think about what it would do for your life. Yeah, is there any chance we could get one to automate the travel authorization process? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, think Good about processes. Think about processes like that, Tom. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can foresee a future where particularly at the management level and potentially at the hourly worker level, we spend much more of our time creating value instead of doing rote, mindless processes that need to be done, but don't create values. So. You know, Tom, we're joking about this, but, but that actually exists to where there are solutions out there now that actually have RPA and forms of artificial intelligence built in that as you upload receipts, it starts to build your expense report. And those things that don't need review and they're already expedited through the system and things that need to be reviewed, they're flagged. And then you have intervention only where it's needed. Yeah. Not not at Tennessee, however. No. I was going to say, we need to get you. No, we're not there. Andy, I'm sitting here staring at two weeks' worth of travel um, receipts, and I'm (laughs) dreading having to do it. Hey, another point I wanted to get back to, Randy, and this is something that that you have taught me again, is um, in your initial comments, you you talked about digitization. Mm -hmm. You you said you weren't going to attribute that quote to somebody, but in that quote, it said digitization. Right. That you took exception to. And when you talk, you talk about digitalization. Can, right. can you shed some light on, on the differences? Yeah. So when we think about a digital journey, we really think about it as being three phases. 
The first phase is digitization. And essentially all that means is a data conversion phase, or sometimes we'll refer to it as process digitization. And what we're doing, we're preparing data, we're liberating data, putting it in a form to where those processes that we're going to adapt and change have the ability to ingest the data, to process the data, and then produce some set of insights. And then that gets us to phase two, which is what we call process digitalization. So it's not just saying I'm going to automate a process, but in some cases it's changing the way that process is actually executed. It also changes who executes the process and how they execute the process. And we do that by way of embracing a portfolio of emerging technologies. And so that's why we call it digitalization. It's dependent on the first phase, which is the digitization phase. And then we get to the third phase, which not every organization gets to, and I don't think every organization needs to, we call that transformation. And that transformation phase is where now we have the creation of something new and different, where our previous business model is rendered obsolete, and now we have to operate differently than we operated before. And a lot of that is not because we want to change, but it's because our consumers are requiring us to change because of the expectations that they're placing upon us. And I often like to separate digital from transformation. We oftentimes hear them together, and I say it's digital plus because you don't, you can digitalize your operations without transforming your entire business. But if you're going to transform your business, it's going to be very difficult to do that without digitalizing your processes. Hey, Randy, that's so helpful. And I think that people use digitalization, digitization kind of interchangeably. And frankly, Ted and I have probably uh, prone to doing that ourselves. I did until Randy yelled at me about it. So. <laughs> got you straight. Got you straight. Randy, something that's incumbent on organizations before they even entertain digitizing and, and maybe ultimately getting to that transformation stage that you describe is having a data strategy. And I know that's something you've been very impassioned about is the notion of a data strategy and how rare, in fact, that is. And then to have data governance that supports it. So can you speak about those two premises? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. When we say very few organizations have a data strategy, the work that we've done through the Advanced Supply Chain Collaborative, that work tells us that fewer than 10% of the organizations actually have a data strategy. And then with re- and when we think about that, it's really not about what type of analytics I'm going to perform, right? We, we have an analytics strategy for that. It's not even really about how I'm going to embed data into my product or my services. That's what your digital strategy tells you. But what your data strategy is, is how are we going to handle and manage data throughout its entire life cycle, from the time that we create it to the time that it's matured to where we actually use it to make decisions to the time that we actually retire and archive it and sit it to the side and we refer to it only as we need to. And a key aspect of that strategy is that you actually need a data governance approach. Now, many executives, at least the ones that I work with, Tom, they are hesitant to put forth any money with respect to it. And part of that is because they don't actually see it generating anything. And what I always say is you have to take a step back. It's not about what it gives you. It's about what it protects you from doing wrong. It's estimated that when you have poor data, and that's data that's typically not governed well, that there is somewhere between a 15 to 25 percent hit that organizations take on their revenue. So we're talking top line impact when you don't govern data effectively. And so if that doesn't motivate an executive to get off his or her seat and say, we need to be doing this, I don't know what will. Well, something that kind of goes part and parcel with going further down this digitization, digitalization path is data security. 
And I think, uh, you know, we talk about how employees might feel threatened with tech replacing them. But I know a lot of companies are, are very concerned about becoming more and more dependent on their data strategy and the vulnerabilities, cyber vulnerabilities that might be introduced. What's your advice to companies in terms of being more dependent on digital capabilities while not letting uh, unwelcome guests through the, the back door? I would say before you start to go too far along the digital journey, you really need to take a step back and ask yourself, how well do we currently, I call it CPIDs, right? It's basically how do I collect, process, and integrate data that comes from multiple data streams? Do we even have our arms around all the sources of data that we're currently generating? And in my experience, most organizations don't. We're investing more in sensors and various forms of auto identification. Those are creating additional data streams. When we bring in advanced robotics and collaborative robots, those are additional data streams. And so if we can't manage the streams we have, the more streams we come in, the more vulnerable we become. And I would say that oftentimes we're asking our chief security officer to do a whole lot more because when we think about cybersecurity, it's not one thing, it's about four different things. And we're asking one person to do that. And really what happens is we really need security professionals and experts within various dimensions of the organizations that are all reporting up and working together with the security czar to help us protect that. And I'll also tell you this, Going to the cloud doesn't necessarily make you more vulnerable. In many cases, it actually helps to protect you more because they invest in professionals where all they do is work to protect data, whereas in our organizations, it's just another side job that we're giving someone in the IT department. Randy, are you meaning to say that the paper sheet that I have that has every username and password in my life written down is not a professional way of managing my data? In fact, it's funny we talk about this. I just yesterday got something in the mail from U-Haul. And for a while, I was moving all kinds of stuff like crazy. So I have the U-Haul app that said, hey, we're sorry, but somebody's got your username, password and driver's license number. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it happens all the time. Hey, fascinating conversation, Randy. Thank you so much for joining us. We could sit here and talk to you for the next hour or so, I'm sure, and, and still have everybody riveted to their seats. But um, in the interest of everybody's time, not the least of which is yours, we're going to wrap now and, and say goodbye to you. We'll have you on again in the future if you're willing to do it. Absolutely. Um, to all of our listeners, uh, thanks so much. Um, we will join you next from the University of Tennessee Supply Chain Forum, October 25th to 27th. We got a few people that are going to be there that we really wanted to get on as guests. And so we have a couple of podcasts that will be coming to you from there. Tom, you want to wrap us up? Again, just such an enlightening session. Thank you so much, Randy. We've uh, been wanting to get you on the program, and I know we're reaching you in Europe right now, so we appreciate the time adjustment and uh, staying up for us to record the podcast. Thanks again to all the listeners. It's been really rewarding as I go to these industry meetings to hear people say, hey, they're listening to the podcast, they're enjoying it. Seems like we got a growing legion. And also our students are listening, which is so cool to hear uh, that they're uh, taking me up uh, on issues that I bring up. You bring up Ted in the podcast. So, hey, keep listening. Tell others about us. You can reach us at gsci at utk.edu. We look forward to hearing from you. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe via your favorite listening platform, such as iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions, we'd love to hear from our listeners. 
Leave a reply in our show notes at gscipodcast.com or email your questions to gsci at utk.edu. Join us next time in our pursuit to prove that supply chain management is more fun than you think.